We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Good evening, everybody. Boy, that got quiet really quickly. I guess when you saw, saw me walking up from the back, you knew that uh, something was going to happen here. We're finally getting started. We're glad that you're here tonight. I understand the kids are going to have a nice time over in uh, Truth Trackers. It's their end-of-the-year celebration. I see some smiles on faces over there, and that's because my wife went out to the grocery store today, and she came back with an armload of junk food. I'm actually thinking about skipping the preaching to go over there. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't do that, but uh, I, told, I told my wife that the kids, I'll tell the kids, you guys better save something for the pastor, huh? <laughs> Sorry, I don't think so. Oh, boy. Okay, well, you know, life is full of trials. We'll just have to deal with another one, that's all. Our reading will be in Second uh, Chronicles and 13. I don't know if I should open up this can of worms, but I'll crack it open just a little bit and see if any worms come out. Um, on that song, uh, Arise, My Soul, Arise, do you have any comments on the words of that song? Any uh, concerns about the wording of it? And I'm thinking of something other than the atoned line, if that's what you're thinking back there, Mr. John. <laughs> Uh-oh, somebody forgot something. Um, anybody have anything? I know I have an advantage. I have a jump on you because I was thinking about this already. There's two, two phrases in there that I wondered uh, what we should uh, think of them. And I th- think I know what we could think of them. Um, in the first line, it says, the bleeding sacrifice. And in the third line, it says, five bleeding wounds he bears. Present tense. Is that true? We have one young theologian who suggests not. Yes, sir? Oh, four. John's gospel says he saw blood and water come out with the spear. Yeah, yeah, so that's blood. Yeah, that's good. I wasn't thinking along those lines. There's wounds bleeding today. Yes, well, scars and bleeding wounds are different. The blood of Christ has, well, yes, right. The crown of thorns probably did a number on his skin too, but uh, those wounds aren't bleeding today. So we have here a poetic expression of kind of uh, across the span of time. They were bleeding, and the blood poured out 
efficaciously for the salvation of sinners, but that's not happening now. He was once offered one sacrifice for all, for all, for all time, not continuously offered, not continued. Now, the, the blood, the benefits of his blood are continuously applied. Uh, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, what? The, remember that verse memorized, First John 1, 7? The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, continually cleanses us. I'm adding continually because it's a present tense. Cleanses us from all sin. So there is a sense in which there's a continual application of, if you will, of the benefit of the blood of Christ. But to, I, I wonder, I, I, I don't know that I really keyed in on this, but I think we do have this kind of, kind of time warp idea that he's bleeding on the cross, but he's before the Father, he's, my surety stands there before God, and thus I'm guaranteed, if I believe in him, to have eternal life. That's all good theology, but the bleeding presently, that's a bit of a theological issue that we can just notice and make sure that we don't think in errant thought that he's still bleeding today and that's how sinners are saved. That is not how sinners are saved by a continual work of bloodletting, if you will. All right, Second Chronicles chapter 13. We are into the reign of Abijah, and I, maybe I should mention this again. If you uh, were tracking with our reading and noticed that in First and Second Kings, you have um, the records of the kings of both Judah and the northern kingdom in Israel. Chronicles, however, focuses on the southern kingdom in Judah. Obviously, some mentions of the north as well. It's almost inevitable or unavoidable, but the focus is on the southern kingdom. And in chapter 13, we see Abijah. It says, in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, Abijah became king over Judah. He reigned three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Micaiah, the daughter of Uriel of Gibeah. And there was war between Abijah and Jeroboam. Abijah set the battle in order with an army of valiant warriors, 400,000 choice men. Jeroboam also drew up in battle formation against him with 800,000 choice men, mighty men of valor. Doesn't seem like the odds are very in favor of the southern kingdom here. Then Abijah stood on Mount um, Zemariam, which is in the mountains of Ephraim, and said, Hear me, Jeroboam and all Israel. Should you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave the dominion over Israel to David forever, to him and his sons, by a covenant of salt? Yet Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, the servant of Solomon, the son of David, rose up and rebelled against his Lord. Then worthless rogues gathered to him and strengthened themselves against Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, when Rehoboam was young and inexperienced and could not withstand them. And now you think to withstand the kingdom of the Lord, which is in the hand of the sons of David, and you are a great multitude, and with you are the gold calves which Jeroboam made for you as gods. Have you not cast out the priests of the Lord, the sons of Aaron, and the Levites, and made for yourselves priests like the peoples of all of other lands, so that whoever comes to consecrate himself with a young bull and seven rams may be a priest of things that are not gods? But as for us, the Lord is our God, and we have not forsaken him. And the priests who minister to the Lord are the sons of Aaron, and the Levites attend to their duties. 
And they burned to the Lord every morning and every evening, burnt sacrifices and sweet incense. They also set the showbread in order on the pure gold table and the lampstand of gold with its lamps to burn every evening. For we keep the command of the Lord our God, but you have forsaken him. Now, look, God himself is with us as our head and his priests with sounding trumpets to sound the alarm against you. O children of Israel, do not fight against the Lord God of your fathers, for you shall not prosper. But Jeroboam caused an ambush to go around behind them, so they were in front of Judah, and the ambush was behind them. And when Judah looked around, to their surprise, the battle line was at both front and rear. And they cried out to the Lord, and the priests sounded the trumpets. Then the men of Judah gave a shout. And as the men of Judah shouted, it happened that God struck Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. And the children of Israel fled before Judah, and God delivered them into their hand. The the pronouns there can get a little confusing, but delivered the north into the south's hand. Then Abijah and his people struck them with a great slaughter, so 500,000 choice men of Israel fell slain. Thus the children of Israel were subdued at that time, and the children of Judah prevailed because they relied on the Lord God of their fathers. This is one of those unique incidents in the Old Testament where that was the case. And Abijah pursued Jeroboam and took cities from him, Bethel with its villages, Jeshanah with its villages, and Ephraim with its villages. So Jeroboam did not recover strength again in the days of Abijah, and the Lord struck him, and he died. But Abijah grew mighty, married 14 wives, and begot 22 sons and 16 daughters. So he wasn't following the Lord in that. Now the rest of the acts of Abijah, his ways and his sayings, are written in the annals of the prophet Iddo. So there's always got to be a fly in the ointment, it seems, with these fellows, um, as there is too often with us, right? So let's turn our Bibles to Matthew 19. We've got to go back and address this somewhat difficult passage of Scripture that we began to look at on Wednesday evening, having to do with marriage and divorce. Trust the Lord will help us in this. Don't need to have this here. Um, the passage obviously is a controversial passage. It's a sensitive passage. It's an emotional passage. Yes, sir. I'm sorry. Matthew 19. Matthew 19. Yep. Um, verses one to twelve in that segment, and uh, it's one of those passages that. You know, believers in the same church are going to have different opinions on different beliefs, different uh, kind of exegesis, if you will, of some of the key points. I think really the one, the one area that's the problem is in verse number 9. We'll come to that in a few moments uh, this evening. I'll review a little bit about what we studied on Wednesday night, and then we'll carry on with the rest of the passage. I started this section by referring us to 1 Corinthians 7 because in that chapter in the Bible, Paul takes what the Lord writes here and he expands on it and kind of lays it out carefully and and kind of breaks it into cases to simplify it. So if you are two Christians that are married, if you're two non-Christians, if you're one Christian, one non-Christian, he has those, especially the first case and the third one that I mentioned, and then the other one we mentioned uh, last Wednesday, we, we don't expect 
to people who are not believers in Christ to follow God's word. But we are able to expect them to follow God's holy ordinance of marriage, which is what he set up from the beginning, regardless of whether they believe in his word or not. And we should regulate that. Yes, yes, you can regulate morality. You do it all the time when you say that there's a penalty for stealing and murder and fraud and embezzlement and and all kinds of other things. You are legislating morality. And this case is really no different. Uh, Marriage is a moral issue because it has to do with what God has laid out for humanity. So we saw that for Christians, uh, husband and wife, they're not to divorce one another. If they do, they're to remain unmarried. That is crystal clear in the text of Scripture. Um, For one believer and one unbeliever who are married, the question that the Corinthians had was, well, I'm unequally yoked now, Paul. What should I do? Should I... you know, unyoke myself and be divorced from my unbelieving spouse. And Paul said, no, if that unbelieving spouse is happy to live with you, just keep it up. You know, you're sanctifying that spouse. Um, We came to the question last time about marriages where both are unbelievers. And although that is unfortunate, I still myself, and I hope you are as well, glad when you see people in the world a man and a woman who aren't even Christians, you're glad that they get married. It's a good thing. It's a gift from God, whether they recognize it or not. It's like a common grace. It's like the sunshine warming your face on a cool fall day or uh, you know, the rain that comes down to water the earth and that sort of thing. It's a wonderful grace that God has given, and it's a good thing. When a man and a woman are joined together in holy marriage, Whether or not they're Christians, God has joined them together because it's the ordinance of God that permitted them to come together. And so I ask the question to kind of throw somebody for a loop to say, if they're two unbelievers, is it true that what God has joined together, that he actually did that so that man should not separate, according to verse number six? Is it so that God joined them together? And scratch your head and say, well, they're not believers. and God wasn't mentioned in the service. Maybe they went before a judge and there was no mention of God at all. God still joined them together by his ordinance of marriage. He didn't have to be there and pronounce some pronouncement upon them for that to happen. It was They were joined together because God taught them what marriage was all about. And I am, I am thankful for that marriage, but they do have that obligation if they've been joined together to stay together. That's, a, that's something that you can hold someone in that state to, and they should know that. But, um, I mean... I did think about this subsequently to my message last Wednesday, and that is, well, what about certain circumstances where you could kind of devise a, a weird situation where the marriage was invalidly contracted from the beginning? There's an example of that in the Bible, right? There were Jews who had married pagans, non-Jews, and those marriages were illegitimate. They were never supposed to have occurred, so in uh, is it Ezra 10 back there? You'd have to look it up, make sure I've got the right address. But they uh, agreed that they should put those wives away that they had married invalidly and, and undo those. So there is a, there is a kind of a, a strange situation. Um, you know, if there is a human trafficking kind of marriage, is that a valid marriage, that sort of thing, you know? Um, Certainly, I think there's room in the law for us to handle that without being displeasing to God uh, in a way that 
you know, helps the woman. I assume the woman is the oppressed party in most cases. Um, so anyway, I turned our attention to 1 Corinthians to kind of elucidate on some of this. We looked at the, uh, the idea that marriage is the glue that holds society together, and we have uh, just dumped on that, that, that glue and made it a difficult situation. But uh, our Lord did spend some time talking about marriage and divorce, and uh, when he was done, the disciples needed to sit down and uh, recover from their shock <laughs> from what he taught about this deal. So we saw the setting. The Lord has, has finished his teaching in chapter 18, uh, finished teaching about uh, dealing with a sinning brother and the unforgiving servant and humility and offenses and uh, the lost sheep and all of that sort of thing. He leaves Galilee. He goes down to Judea. Uh, the end of verse 1 says, so remember he had been traveling up about the north Tyre, Sidon, up north of Galilee, down to Galilee, and now back down south again uh, to Judea, but beyond the Jordan to a place called Perea, P-E-R-E-A, which is in today modern Syria, uh, not quite as far east as, uh, I'm sorry, not Syria, uh, Jordan, not quite as far as Amman, Jordan, to the east, but on that side of the uh, river, Jordan. So, uh, he uh, comes into contact with his uh, best friends, the Pharisees, and they come testing him, saying, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? If you're taking notes, you might say uh, in the margin there or after the word reason, capital N, capital O. That's his answer. That's his brief, you know, to kind of briefly summarize his answer. No, not just for any reason. They were asking, not is it okay to divorce in some limited way, situations, but is it okay in any, for any reason at all, for just any reason? Now, we saw that divorce was a thing that happened in Israel, Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, and uh, you, you might remember, if you listened to the message or were, were here, that I, I had this kind of ambivalence about speaking about God permitting divorce, because he didn't permit it in a favorable, permissive way, but in a disfavorable permissive way, but we said that he did permit divorce, and the Lord says that later on in our passage here, that he did permit divorce in that sense. Um, So this was a testing question. They were trying to trip up the Lord in some detail or some inconsistency or something like that, and just a very unloving, unkind, mean approach to Jesus and asking him these questions instead of really wanting to glean wisdom. They wanted to get one up on him and see if they could get him to fall into some sin in the law. So Jesus gives the initial answer in verse 4. He takes them right back to the beginning. Okay, we'll go back to spring training here again, back to the basics. He answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? There's only two types. There's male types and female types. That's it. Uh, That's what God did. And he said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You know, I'm I'm cognizant of the fact that I'm speaking to a group of people where there are a number of folks who are divorced, and I'm sure the people listening, if they look at the title of this on YouTube, are going to be like, oh, what's he say about that, you know? You know, how can, I, how can I justify my position based on what this church pastor says? Well, 
uh, you're not going to find a whole lot of comfort in, <laughs> in what I'm saying. And I'm aware of that, and you know, you understand uh, there's no ill intent here whatsoever. I'm trying to exegete the text of Scripture just like we always do. But to set that aside, um, so Jesus answers, he says, God made men and women there to, be, uh, to leave their father and mother, to be joined, the, the husband joined to his wife, and the two will become one. That's the standard. So then, he says, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. That's the conclusion that he draws that two have become one. Something inexplicable has happened, something mystical, like we talk about the union between Christ and his church in Ephesians 5, so it is with the man and his wife, how God has joined them, glued them together. They become one flesh. And God has, did not make any provision, you notice, in Genesis 1 or 2 for the undoing of that oneness. It's like permanent glue. And as you know, when a divorce happens, the tearing of that permanent glue does have some very bad effects on our psyches, on our, on our minds, our spirits, our hearts, our bodies, and so on. So it's obviously when he, if he hasn't designed that into the system to, to break the system, so to speak, is going to be a very painful experience. And indeed, it is as people will, will attest to that. So uh, there's no provision for the undoing of that in the initial instructions. That means that God's initial design was permanency. One man, one woman for life until death parted them. Uh, no provisions for severing, changing the arrangement. The Lord Jesus concludes that God the Father intended for the relationship to stay that way until death severed it. Um, death is a powerful thing, as we said. It can sever a lot of things, including the marriage bond. It does even more than that. It severs the connection between the person's spirit and their body, which is a very hard thing to do, but it does do that. So he then applies the truth, what God has joined together, man must not separate. And we said that this is a very powerful statement, not only for the man and his wife, but also for all of those about them who, make, uh, who assist them in that. Lawyers, friends of the court, judges, blah, blah, blah. All of those are ones who violate the Lord's command that what God has joined together, man must not separate. Judges, lawyers, friends of the court, you know, husband and wife, all of that. Uh, friends, you know, just go ahead and divorce her. Just go ahead and divorce him. You know, and people, because they want to do that in their heart, they say, oh, that advice sounds good. I'll take that advice. What about the Lord's advice? You know, what about your pastor's advice? We talked about advice this morning, didn't we? So the short answer to their question in verse 4, uh, sorry, verse 3 is no. It's not okay, not lawful to divorce your wife for just any reason. It's not in accordance with God's design. Marriage is supposed to be permanent. So he doesn't really permit divorce at all. But he makes clear instead that the elevated and holy status that marriage has in God's design. And if I don't get anything else across to you, I want you to get this, that what Jesus teaches the Pharisees and the disciples here is that he takes marriage from a kind of mundane, 
you know, just something that is level, up to a level that is, you know, the marriage bed is undefiled, that kind of idea in, in Hebrews 13. He elevates it to the holy place that it is. It is very important in the eyes of God. Not so in the world, but in the eyes of God, it's extremely important. It is sacrosanct. It is to be treated with great care. It is not disposable like a diaper. It is not something you try out and then discard later if it doesn't feel just right. It is a high and holy estate. That's what we want to get across. And anything less than that is a problem. I said, uh, well, I don't know if I said this last time, but I, I say it this time for sure. Society should put as much effort into saving marriages as it does into divorcing them. If it spends $10 billion a year on, on divorce and, and the whole industry, uh, why not spend 10 or $20 billion a year on saving marriages? That just seems to me to be sensible, but who am I? Um, you know, just uh, a small Christian in a small Christian church crying out in the wilderness like John the Baptist. People don't want to hear that. They want to do what they want to do. Remember what I said this morning? You do what you want to do. That is what you're doing is because you really want to do it. You choose to do it. Now, don't pretend otherwise. Uh, oh, I have to. Or, no, you don't have to. You don't have to get a divorce. Fix things. Anyway, count up the hours of time spent, the people, the governmental staff, the money, the judges, the lawyers that go into the divorce industry, the, the advertising on the radio that you hear. Is there anything close to that, working on marriage education and counseling and other helps to keep families together? I'm not saying there's none. Of course there are marriage seminars and, and all kinds of things, counseling and so on, churches working overtime to help their, their people. I mean, one of the best ways to help marriages is to just put, a, put an ounce of prevention in at the beginning. Um, at the very beginning, premarital counseling. Avoid getting married to somebody who's not a good partner for you in the first place, even if it's emotionally wrenching for you to have to be disassociated from that person during you know, pre-engagement or in the, in the engagement period. Uh, it will save you a lot of hassle. Um, and then also throughout the life of the church, you know, when I talk about being in the Word, uh, focusing on making disciples and that sort of thing, fighting sin in your life like we talked about this morning, those are things that will help you to prevent problems even before they begin because the little things won't become big things. You'll squash the little things as, as they come up and you'll learn to forgive one another and to apologize to one another and so on. The track record of that you know, let's say marriage help industry is not doing so well. If 50% of marriages end in divorce, then there's a lot of work to do to help marriages that struggle and to avoid bad marriages in the first place. So with all of that said, the Pharisees come back and say, verse 7, they said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? They thought, aha, we've got him. We have got him. And it's true that, merit, that Moses did uh, set that up uh, in Deuteronomy 24. Uh, it seems to the Pharisaical mind to be the opposite of what Jesus was saying. They must have thought they had him in their trap. They understood what the Lord was saying, what God has joined together, man must, must not separate. And if, 
Now, if they, they understood what the Lord was saying, should not we also understand it? They understood he's elevating marriage. Do we understand that he's elevating marriage? I mean, we're better, better than the Pharisees, aren't we? I hope. We ought to understand that if they understood it. But we ought not to go to the next step, which is the question that they asked about, well, why did he give a certificate of divorce? Well, he, they just walked into his trap. Watch what happens. They failed to recognize that there was a great distance between what Moses said in 1400 B.C. and what God said at creation more than 2,000 years before that. God had laid down the situation. Marriage is for a man and a woman for a long, long, long time, life. Moses, quote, commanded, unquote, a certificate of divorce in order to regulate, limit, constrain, and restrain the sin of the people. This was a concession to the fact that we live in a sin-cursed world. It was a standard to bring society up from the lowest possible condition to some level of sanity, far from perfect, but better than the baser condition in which there, the world would exist if there were no limits at all on divorce and remarriage. It would be, to, as I've said before, total anarchy. So Jesus gives a second answer in verses 8 and 9 to their second question. The Lord makes clear the why of the instruction in Deuteronomy 24. Look at verse 8. He said, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce. Oh, there it is right there. The reason for the divorce command was what? The hardness of heart. It was not a problem in God that brought about the divorce certificate instruction. It was not a problem in what Jesus just said. It was a problem in what the heart of man is like. The heart of men and women. Human nature, not divine nature, was the problem. You see, the Pharisees are trying to pin blame on the Son of God. The Son of God turns around and says, Look, you guys are the bunch of sinners. You're the ones with the problem. Not God, not me. This human sinful hardness led, led God to permit divorce, not in a favorable permissive way, but in an unfavorable permissive way is how I explain it. It was an accommodation to the sinfulness of mankind that was required to keep some semblance of law and order in the nation of Israel. From the beginning, look at that, verse 8. From the beginning, it was not so. That's not how God designed it. This, is like a, a, this was like a stopgap measure. This was like putting a finger in the dike of marriage and divorce to try to keep things at least a little bit sane. That's what Deuteronomy 24 was. If you want to get down to the bottom of what marriage is supposed to be, that's where you have to go. What God has joined together, let not man put asunder. We looked at that. Now, verse 9 is the most controversial of the passage. It says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her is divorced commits adultery. So there are, let's say, two cases, the regular case and the exception case, or what's called the exception clause. May we just for a moment set aside the exception clause and look at every other case. If someone divorces his wife and marries another, what's he do? What's he guilty of? He's guilty of adultery. Why is that? Because he's supposed to be still faithful to his original wife. That's right, his wife, not his prior wife. 
his wife. God joined it together. I understand what divorce does. Get that. But if it's called a sin of adultery, then it's called a sin of adultery. If a man breaks it and and is with someone else, it's a violation of the command against adultery. Then also, if another man marries the woman who is divorced, he also, with her, commits adultery, since it takes two to do that. Counterparties in each case are also guilty of adultery. So you have to think about this. Are you willing to be guilty of that? If not, then do not get a divorce. And if you do, then do not be remarried. And if you are remarried, well, you're married to your current spouse, and that's it. You stay there. But do notice this, please. Even if you divorce but do not remarry, you're still guilty of a sin against scriptural teaching. Because you owe your body to your spouse in terms of intimacy. You owe that oneness to your spouse. So even to separate and say, well, that's the lesser of two evils, it's still an evil. 1 Corinthians 7, 2-5. If you're living apart, you're obviously not doing what the Lord has said through the Apostle Paul. So that's every other case. Well, let's say it this way. That's the normal, that's the kind of regular case, not the exception clause. So... If there's a divorce in any of that, those circumstances, it's, it's adultery or it's not being faithful to the marriage vows that you made, according to 1 Corinthians 7, 2, and 5. Now we can process the exception clause. Here's, here's how I begin to process it. In every other case, the result is adultery. Okay, you with me? All these cases, it's adultery. We're in the exception clause. Every other case is adultery. When people get divorced, often they get remarried or live with someone else as if they are married in an attempt to satisfy their needs, but to justify themselves that they're okay because they're at least not making another marriage commitment. You know, the whole idea, live together as if you're married, but pretend you're not. So if every other case basically results in adultery in one or both partners, and the exception clause is adultery, then that means that every case boils down to adultery, yes? All these over here result in adultery. This one over here, the exception clause. What is the exception clause? Uh, Except for sexual immorality. So the Lord is telling us, no matter what way you slice it, it doesn't look good. Now, many Christians take a broad view of the exception clause, namely that any act of adultery by one spouse justifies the other to divorce. Some have even, uh, even have the idea that an act of adultery permanently breaks the marriage bond. Now, it certainly breaks the promise of exclusivity made on the wedding day, but it does not immediately cause the cessation of a marriage, as if the marriage is now irretrievably broken. In fact, the offending spouse can offer contrition, The offended spouse can receive with forgiveness. It's not easy. It's very difficult. It takes very diligent effort. But it is possible to restore marriage after an act of indiscretion by one of the partners. That is possible. So it's not that that, a sin of that nature immediately breaks the bond and just frees you from any kind of obligation. Other interpreters, and I'm included in this group, have taken the view that the exception clause was demonstrated in the lives of Joseph and Mary during betrothal. At least it has to be that. Uh, And you remember Joseph was a just man. 
He said that, right? He was a just man, and he sought to put away his betrothed in a way that was sensitive to her and, and not going to shame her and all of that. Um, so it, it seems that that certainly fits here. But the question is whether it expands beyond that. Because of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 10, and 11, which I dealt with in our introduction a few minutes ago, he flat out commands two Christians that are married to stay together or if they're separated to remain unmarried. For that reason, I don't take the exception clause in a broad sense. How can I explain it a different way? Uh, If the exception clause permits divorce in that case without any kind of questions and everything's fine, then I think that kind of undercuts what Paul is saying about two Christian spouses that are married they should stay together, or if they are divorced, say because of immorality, they need to remain unmarried. There's not a freedom for them to go ahead and be uh, remarried to another. That's what Paul's indicating in 1 Corinthians 7. We interpret the, the unclear by the clear. 1 Corinthians 7 is super clear, so we have that as a foundation on which we can look at this passage. Um, but any case, um, where was I at? So I understand why many people do take the exception clause in a broader sense on exegetical grounds. Um, But I wonder sometimes if many of those who take the broader view do so because of emotion or how difficult the situation is. That's not my problem. That's the problem that somebody has gotten themselves into if they chose poorly a spouse or, or, or did not live the way they were supposed to. In any case, like I said, there's controversy built in here because of the emotional nature of the situation and the life-altering consequences of marriage and divorce. But if you look at verse number 10, his disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. They take what the Lord says to an a wrong excess, but I think this should alert us to the fact that they understood the same thing that the Pharisees did, that marriage is a high and holy estate that is permanent, coming from the lax culture in which they were. I mean, divorce was just, you know, rampant then. I mean, it just, we come from a lax culture today, too, on it, don't we? Uh, Coming from that culture, what Jesus said literally shocked them. I mean, their jaws were dropped as low as they could go, and they were like, huh? What do you mean? This is another reason why I take the more limited nature of the exception clause and, and the whole picture. They're getting this idea in their minds like, this is tough. Now, whether you take the exception clause or not, as, broad, as a broad exception, it's still tough compared to what they had. And so they're in, they're, they're in shock. Uh, we are very different than the world, aren't we? We are very different than the world. When the world sees how we do things like marriage, they ought to see a massive difference in how we treat it and how we help people who need help and how we stay together and how we raise our kids and that sort of thing. The, uh, with the lax divorce restrictions we have now, with annulments, 
I always wonder how you do annulments. That's like pretending, you know. That's like fairy tale stuff. The world is so conditioned that when they hear what Jesus says, they're in a state of shock. We should not be in such a state ourselves. We should be in like, yeah, that's exactly right, Jesus. You preach it. Um, the world tries to treat marriage as if it's not that special or important, but far from that, God elevates it to a holy estate, far beyond the world's dim estimation of its importance. And people know this intuitively in their hearts. Why is it that young women and young men want to be married? What, what's, in their, what's in their hearts that they know that there's some, they, they should have some commitment and they should be together and uh, to have children. There's something there that God has put in. It's called the conscience. It's called the innate knowledge of right and wrong. And, of course, it's being educated away today from the youngest ages. They're trying to do that. But it's still been put there by God. People know intuitively in their, their hearts that you don't enter into marriage lightly. That's why they have a large ceremony and they spend a lot of money on it. And it's supposed to be a, a very you know, infrequent kind of event. But education and conditioning over the years have softened this so that there, there's not this kind of special edge to marriage. So this then led this kind of thinking that the disciples are like, wow, this is, this is far out, you know. Uh, they said they took an extreme position. If the standard of marriage is so high, and it is, then we better not marry at all. You know, we got to protect ourselves here. That's kind of the... Um, that's not the same exactly, but it's similar to that movement that's out there that's called, what is that movement called? Um, M-G-T-O-W, men going their own way. It's a movement of men who are, who are um, putting marriage out of the equation in their minds, just in, and even putting women out of the equation in their minds because they've been so burned uh, Divorce that was unfair, the courts favored the woman and took the children away and blah, 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 and all of this. And they just say, forget the whole thing. They just go right down that path. Well, the disciples were doing something similar. Just forget the whole thing. But that itself, that idea is displeasing to the Lord. You cannot junk the whole idea of marriage without endangering men and women to the fate of burning with passion not procreating to propagate the race, not following God's desire for the race to be fruitful and multiply, destroying basic home life structure that has been the bedrock of every society for thousands of years. So obviously their position couldn't be true, so they're guilty of swinging the pendulum too far the other way. Instead, the right answer is to be very intentional and careful about selecting your mate, having all the help you can in terms of counselors, due diligence, spending long enough in dating and courtship or whatever you call it to be able to know the person uh, and beyond knowing the potential future spouse very well, you both have to be committed to marriage as a permanent institution, to do it the way God has commanded it to be done, no matter how hard it is because there will be hard seasons, period. There always is. You must be fixed on Ephesians 5, 1 Peter 3, Colossians 3, and other passages that instruct about marriage. You have to both be committed to the idea that marriage is not a trial run. It's not temporary. It is permanent, permanent. Not temporary, permanent. You know what I mean? Temporary, permanent. We'll try it out. Well, it'll last a long while. And, you know, and 
take a while for us to get split up and all that sort of stuff. Just, just crazy. So they were swinging it too far. Listen, you need just a park on that. You know, young people, back to the idea this morning of being submissive. If your parents have problems with the young lady or the young man that you're interested in, then you better perk up your ears and figure out what's going on and be willing to submit to them in that way if they have legitimate concerns. I'm talking about legitimate concerns, not wacky-doodle concerns, okay? Um, And get counsel from people. What is this person like? Uh, You know, I mean, we... (laughs) I hope you don't do more due diligence when you hire an employee and get references than you do when you're trying to find a spouse, you know? (laughs) Yeah, get references. Talk to their pastor. Talk to their parents. Um, Find out what they're all about and so on and so forth. Jesus then clarifies that trying to bring this pendulum back into order, he says to them that their, their extreme conclusion was off, tries to bring them back to reality. He says only some people can take that conclusion. And then he, and he gives a, us a name for them, uh, eunuchs, verse 12. A eunuch was sometimes a court official, but in this context, it's one who's either uninterested in, in, a, in the opposite sex or impotent to have children or has been castrated and unable to have normal physical relations. The, the three categories are someone who's either castrated, celibate, or impotent. Um, Isaiah, what is it, Isaiah 56 uh, mentions eunuchs as those who are unable to have children for whatever reason. It doesn't specify. But only some people have the ability to be happily single. I, we've called that those who have the gift of singleness. Either they're born that way or have committed themselves by a voluntary vow of celibacy or those who have been forcibly castrated or sterilized. This was not uncommon in the ancient world to have done. Uh, They had as many perversions as we have today and more back in the day, so to speak. The people who can accept the idea that it's better not to marry, you know, let them do that, the Lord says. Some can accept that, let them accept that. That's fine. But others, in fact, most people are not gifted that way nor disabled that way. So the normal condition is for men and women to marry. And why? It's not good for a man to be alone. Uh, Most men will just focus on the man's side of it. They need a woman, period, to complete them, to help them, to soften the rough edges of their character, to enjoy together, to provide companionship, to be life partners, co-workers, and those things. Two is better than one, except in the relatively rare case where one decides, I want to be single so I can focus on serving the Lord without distraction, 1 Corinthians 7, 32 to 35. But that's relatively rare. Bottom line for me is that God has established marriage as a high and holy calling. It's no joke. It's to be maintained, jealously guarded, protected, nurtured, strengthened, whatever we can do to help you to do that let us know. I don't think we should focus on the exception clause. We have to deal with it, obviously, but we don't focus on it as if that's the main point of the passage because it's not. I I don't know how to say it otherwise. I mean, if you diagram the passage, the exception clause is like in here. It's not one of the main ideas on the margin. 
of your diagram. It's only a subpoint that might apply in certain difficult situations, but that doesn't soften the reality that where there's divorce, there's sin. Before, during, and likely after the divorce. That's a deep-rooted sin problem in the marriage. And so, what's the hope for that sin? Well, what's the hope for every sin? I've been more sensitized lately to this idea, you know, people say, you know, so such and such or so and so, you know, they're really bad because they do this or they have this lifestyle. I say, yeah, yeah, you, you were really bad too because you did such and such and had such and such a lifestyle. Why are we categorizing and saying, oh, well, that person's really bad? No, look, all sin can be forgiven in Christ if you come to him and confess that sin. Divorce, remarriage, homosexuality, um, whatever. Anything, as gross as it might be. I mean, why do you think it took Christ dying? Because our sins are terrible, all of them. And thank God that he provided for us to have eternal life. He took a man like David. He took a murderer like Saul. He took me and you, and all of our sins, bad desires, and all the rest, and brought us to himself. Thank God for that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the grace of God and salvation that washes away our iniquities, even in this area of marriage. Help us in our marriages presently. Those that are present here, those that are listening online, strengthen those units, those onenesses, so that they will be bound together strongly. And uh, Lord, we love you and thank you for your kindness. Help us to enjoy the rest of our evening and get some good rest tonight. And may the rest of our week be uh, enjoyable and serving Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.